Hey there, this is Rish Outfield, and you are listening to the Rish Outcast. Uh, cast. And um, I'm going to try and keep it short today. I'm going to do, well, we'll see. But uh, my plan is to not take up too much of your time. My time. Our time. So today I thought I would talk a little bit about length. <laughs> no, no, no. When I when I mean by length, you talking about length. <laughs> That's like Ariana Grande talking about morbid obesity. Perfect, <laughs> Sean. You, you know who Ariana Grande is? Well, yes, of course. Who, who do you suppose slept with her mother? Like, I would think somebody named Grande. Well, yes. Yes, but uh, that was my nickname, because I'm so... Yeah, yeah. neither of us are, are too clever today, fake Sean. So, what I mean by length is length in storytelling. So, if you've heard me on this show or on the Dune Steve, I find it difficult to stop complaining about drabbles or flash fiction. A story that has to be exactly 500 words long. A story that has to be exactly 100 words long. The only person I know of who has less of a need for that sort of thing is Big Anklevich. Perhaps that's why we are friends. But conversely, we've all been there. You're, you're reading a book and you're just like, wow, this is, this is long. It starts to become a slog. It starts to become a marathon. It starts to become a test of your endurance. And we've all read books that were overwritten, that were overstuffed, that treaded water for a good time, or they neandered, or, you know, they used a paragraph when a sentence would do, or a page when a paragraph would do. And I listen to a lot of audiobooks. I'm, I'm not going to say that's the main way that I read books. I do own books. I do read books. There are two days each week where I sit down and force myself to read. Well, it's not force myself, but there's time set aside for that. And every once in a while, you know, I'll, I'll be in a waiting room. You know, I'll take my nephew to his basketball practice and I can sit down and read. Why am I over-explaining this? But yeah, you see, with reading, you take several letters that each represents a sound. And a line of these letters will make a word, and a line of words will make a sentence. Sorry, I felt the need to explain reading to you because I was explaining reading to you. But yeah, I listen to a lot of audiobooks, but I don't have a lengthy commute like Big Anklevich does, and so it takes a while to listen to these audiobooks. The deal with the library, with my library, is that you can check something out for three weeks. So I get the audiobook, and if I start listening to it on that day, I can usually finish it within a month or so. But every once in a while, somebody will request the book, or I didn't start it the day that I checked it out. And so, so you start to incur late fees. And it's at that moment when I really feel the length of a book where I'm just like, oh gosh, there's still six more discs and it's due tomorrow. Or it doesn't even have to be like that. Every once in a while, you just feel. You're listening to something and you, the story is carrying you along and you feel the momentum of the story. You feel that it's heading toward the final act. And then it doesn't or it takes too long for that final act. Or an interlude shows up and it starts to be really difficult. You start to sense the length of the piece. It feels too long. I, I mean, I guess this isn't just a, a tiny little subject to talk about. This is something where what I need to do is sit down and come up with examples and talk about maybe books I have read that were too long or too short. And one is definitely better than the other. For a book to be too short, 
you know, that's a bummer because I sure would have liked to have spent more time with these characters or in this world or with this author. But for a book to be too long, there's not really any silver lining to that. That's pretty much wholly negative, I'm sorry. Uh, for example, a writer that I have become a really big fan of recently, uh, he's a British writer named David Gemmell, and he's a fantasy writer. And I really, really respond to his writing. I, I find his voice and the characters that he describes, they come alive for me. And he writes short novels, but there's so much stuff that happens in those novels that they could easily be the big, you know, 800, 900,000 page epics that we're used to with fantasy, but except they aren't. And there will be chapters where, you know, this huge battle takes place and it's all covered in a chapter or, you know, the next chapter starts and six years have passed. And I, I know it, it's got to be deliberate because naturally you'd want to, uh, for example, you know, two boys are friends in chapter six and then chapter seven starts and three years have passed and they are no longer friends. He has deliberately withheld information from us, decided not to write what happened during those three years. And you get little bits and pieces, maybe through dialogue or through somebody remembering the last time that they spoke to each other and you find out why they're no longer friends. But those books seem too short to me. I got the first book in a series and I devoured it. I just, oh, I loved it. But it was too short. And before I had finished the first book, I knew that I wanted to get the second book. And so I went on Amazon and I ordered it. And when I got it, I, I looked at the back and this second book doesn't take place right after the first book. It's years down the line. Again, I feel like that has to be deliberate. He chose not to make a traditional sequel with the same characters, you know, and the same relationships, but he chose to do like the next generation in a book for the sequel. And that's frustrating. It's too short. It's not enough of a good thing. But, you know, with other writers, the opposite is certainly true. And, and I remember when I got Under the Dome by Stephen King, I was used to him writing these sort of meandering, overstuffed novels, unlike the economy of storytelling that he had when he was a young man. And suddenly in Under the Dome, it didn't feel like this new Stephen King. It felt like the young Stephen King. It felt like the guy that wrote The Dead Zone or the guy that wrote The Shining or the guy that wrote Salem's Lot or the guy that wrote Firestarter. I just, I didn't get it. It was like, well, how, how did he get his groove back, as they say? Or, well, as no one says. And then later I found out, well, that Under the Dome was something that he started 30 years previously and shelved and it didn't work. He picked it up again and tried to write it in the 80s and it just uh, gave him a real hard time. So he sat it down again and now here we were in the 21st century and it, it felt like early Stephen King. His, his books are too long. Today my friend Austin texted me and he said he was finishing a book and these are the three Stephen King books that he owns. Which one do I recommend that he reads next? And one of them was from the 70s one of them was from the 90s, and then one of them was from 2018. And I told him, the one from the 70s is great. That's, that's the one that you should get. But I know you. You like big, fatty, overlong, dull monstrosities like insomnia. So read insomnia. That's the one that you will like. I guess what I'm saying is that it's personal preference. You know, I, I bring up Stephen King a lot because he is the author that I know the best. He's my favorite author. Other than him, I bring up Brandon Sanderson a lot 
because I've seen Brendan Sanderson many times and have had more than a, f a few difficulties with his writing. Yeah, he writes these gargantuan books, but there's not an economy of storytelling there. To, not for my taste. When I read The Way of Kings, it was a slog. There would be these interstitial parts that dealt with figures in history of the kingdom, and some of them tied in to the rest of the narrative, but some of them did not. And it just bugged me. It bugged the crap out of me that I was being carried along by the narrative, and now we're taking a rest stop and checking in with characters that to me didn't matter. But, but my friend Austin loves that kind of writing, and he, he loves to immerse himself in a huge world with layers of detail in everything, and history, and language, and culture, and religion, and royalty, and family history, and all that stuff. That, that, that's the sort of thing that really speaks to him, that appeals to him. He said that, you know, if he could be a writer, that's the kind of thing that he would write. Something where it takes an, I don't want to say obligation, it takes a commitment from the reader. You know, it's not for the faint of heart. And my buddy Jeff says that about Neil Stevenson's writing. I've talked before about how many books he would go through. And when he moved to Germany, he had a collection of 3,000 books. And he just gave them all away because he had it in his head. He, he, he's a big believer in... The wisdom of Sir Tyler Durden, who said, the things that you own end up owning you. And so he gave away all these books. I took hundreds of them, I think. Basically, if it was an author that I had heard good things about, I would take them. I gave some to Big Anklevich. Uh, he gave some to his kids. He gave some to his nephews. He gave some to, I think his parents went through and picked some out. But a ton of them he just donated to Goodwill or it seems like maybe his his local library. He just brought him boxes and boxes and boxes of books. Which is a very roundabout way of saying Jeff really likes to read. And he told me that Neil Stevenson's books require such a commitment of concentration that they are exhausting to him that Jeff usually has to read a couple of British cozies after he's read a Neil Stevenson book to cleanse the palate. You know, he needs to read a kid's book. He needs to read something that it's just not so weighty. And I read Seven Eves by Neil Stevenson, which I found to be wonderful. But there were easily three books worth of content in Seven Eves. And why he didn't release it as three books, I've no idea. I, I would have been more satisfied with that book split into three. And it would be really, really natural because there are three sections of the book, basically. Before this cataclysm is coming, what happens after the cataclysm happens? And then centuries later, we pick up with the descendants of the survivors of the cataclysm, and each one of those should have been a book because there were so many characters, there was so much detail, there was so much uh, interesting stuff going on, uh, and it was hard to make it through Seven Eves, even though, like I said, I thought it was really great. There was just too much. Everybody has their own line, like I said. For example, Stephen King wrote The Stand, I think it was in 1978. And The Stand, if I had to guess, I would say it was 800 pages, 790 pages, something like that. And it was a big book. It was an epic. But his publisher had gotten the manuscript originally from King that clocked in at like 1,100 pages. And they said, you know, we can't release an 1,100-page book. You know, you're going to have to make significant edits, or we are going to make significant edits. And so the version that came out in the 70s is sort of truncated. It's still very, very large. 
But then when Stephen King, just a decade or so later, when he had become the Stephen King, you know, the famous writer, well, then they put out an expanded version. Now, people always say the uncut version, but it, it's not that. He went through and sort of revised everything so that the book took place like a decade later than it originally had taken place in, and he changed some of the, he updated some of the pop culture references, movie titles, song, things like that, but he reinstated the way the book had originally begun back in 1978, and there have been a lot of people that I talk to that say that is the version of The Stand that you read. That is the superior version. And then there are other people that are just like, no, that is the bloated version of The Stand, where things that you didn't need the first time around have been put back in. And I can see both points of view. There are definitely parts in the 1990 version that are, they're just too much. Extraneous detail. There's like a whole chapter about the world sort of coming to an end that just offers little vignettes of people and what happens to them. And it does feel indulgent there. And it has a new ending whereas the first version of The Stand had a happy ending. The revised version of The Stand has a sequel setup ending, you know, from a horror movie of, oh, but the evil did not completely die. <laughs> kind of ending. But while I'm criticizing, I guess, the, the expanded version, the start of the new version, newer version. I like the way that it starts better. You actually get to see the outbreak begin instead of, instead of the way that the 70s version began where something is going on already and we don't know what or why, uh, but it's going on. We don't see the beginning of it. I don't know, there, there are definitely pros to both. There are little additions in the expanded version that make a difference in characters and their development. They enrich the story, but then there are also parts which maybe he was or his publisher was wise to snip out. I guess the point I'm trying to make is that your mileage may vary. And I understand Austin's idea of wanted, wanting to dive into an epic novel and spend months reading it or, you know, dedicate your whole summer to it. I do understand that. It's like, wow. But then sometimes that's just too much of a commitment. You start to, you start to find things tedious. They've just gone on too long. And I don't know. I mean, as a writer... I mean, n none of us are ever going to be at the level of Stephen King or Brandon Sanderson, for that matter, where you can basically just do what you want. You've got a free pass because of your name, because of your track record, because of your audience. I guess in a way, it's similar to me having the Rish Outcast, and I present stories on the show, and every once in a while I would present a larger story, and I get to decide how many pieces to break it up into. When it, like when I did A Sidekick's Journey, the second Birth of a Sidekick story, and I broke that into five parts, I, I didn't hear any criticism of uh, five episodes. Your Patreon supporters have to pay five times for this thing. I felt like I had split it up in a... I didn't feel like I had split it up in a way that would maximize my profits. Um, although it could easily have been four parts instead of five parts. Maybe I'll burn in hell for that. I don't know. But I have a couple of lengthier novellas, novelettes, what have you, that I've considered running on 
the outcast. And I don't know. I, I, the, I mean, there's nobody to answer to. I, I could put the question out there. I mean, how would you feel if I ran a six-hour story on the show and split it into like eight parts? But, I mean, ultimately, it's me. It's me. It's what I decide to break it into. And then I record the bookends for those segments. And, uh, I mean, sometimes I do that stuff separately. Um, but other times, it's like, okay, I'm going to end right here. And then I'm going to talk about it. Like, when I broke up Sleep Talking Gal, I knew at what point I wanted to split that. And so I went ahead and recorded the episodes. But then when I did the editing and I split the episodes at that moment, I had 70% of the story in the first part and 30% of the story in the second. So that didn't work out wonderfully for me math-wise, but I still didn't have a lot of people complain. But, okay, but we're talking about lengths of episodes, lengths of stories, I guess. I think the longest episode... I ever put out was the one about my the death of my father. And that was partly because I had recorded that over several sittings. It was it was about a month recording that episode. I wanted to get it all out in one show. I didn't want to split that up and do an episode about the funeral and an episode about the aftermath or the episode about my memories of my father or whatever. I just wanted that one done. And that's long. But also, I, I put out an episode that was like 40 minutes long just last week. And that feels short to me. I feel like the sweet spot is about an hour for an episode of The Rish Outcast. But depending on whether I'm running a story or not, it's going to be longer or shorter. Like, I, I broke up Todd, Jenny, and the Ugly Doll into two episodes. And I hadn't intended to do that, do you remember? But because I had accidentally shut off the recording after getting to the end and thanking everybody and pressing stop and realizing that I had just pressed start, I was so angry that it's like, okay, this is going to be split into two episodes now to make it worth my while to re-record all of that stuff again. I went to a panel at that writer's conference that I like to go to where it was about writing short stories or novels. Which should it be, a short story or a novel, when you have an idea? So, uh, when we're talking about my own writing, the longest thing that I have written is Into the Furnace, which barely qualifies as a novel by um, the Hugo Awards rules. And I'm trying to remember who it was. There was somebody where I said, you know, I put out my first novel, and they said, how many words was it? And I told them, and they said, that's not a novel. Um, I'm trying to remember who that... Well, maybe if you're listening and you said that, you know it was you. I know that there are sliding scales of what constitutes a novel and what doesn't. And every once in a while you'll see somebody like John Grisham puts out, you know, Surviving Christmas or Playing for Pennies or Peanuts or Penises. What was the story? Pizza. Okay. Jeez. And those are short novels, you know? The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon. Elevation. Short novels kind of thing, but I've talked a little bit about my thoughts while I was writing Into the Furnace of just, it's so close to being a novel, how much work would, it, how much more work would it take to get it there, to get it to that word count? And that there were a couple of places where I felt like I could have expanded, I could have explored, but I just didn't have it in me. I'm not a novelist. I am a short story writer. Hopefully this is long in the past for you, but I'm in the process of finally finishing up the audiobook for 10,000 Coffins, which is a story that I wrote in 2017, not coming out until 2019. And as of today, the day that I'm recording this, I wrote it down, 10,000 Coffins is 31,407 words long. And I'm sure by the time I get to the end and write up my little author's note of where it came from and stuff, we'll be at 32,000, maybe 33,000 words. That's not a novel by the, the rules. It's not strictly a novel. 
It's a novella. And if somebody told me, we will publish this book, if it's an actual novel, if you cross the 40,000 word mark, I could do it. There are a couple of parts in the book where I sort of skate around the history of the characters. And I mean, there are not a lot of characters. This is a very, very limited point of view book. And I think I could milk another seven or 8,000 words from it and have it be a novel by the Hugo's standpoint. But if somebody said, oh, we're going to need it to be 50,000 words or more, I don't know what I would do. I think I would put a couple more try-fail cycles with Brooke in that. But I don't know that that story is novel-worthy. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like the, the thing that I'm writing, the thing that I wrote, would work as a movie. And you wouldn't have to cut out a tremendous amount. But it wouldn't work as a three-hour movie. You know what I mean? It wouldn't work as a miniseries. And I've seen over the years, that, especially with Stephen King, that usually the movies that are made from his short stories or his novellas come out the best. They feel the most complete. They feel the most true to the source material. You get something like Shawshank Redemption or Stand By Me from a shorter piece. But you try to adapt one of his big novels into a movie and you're going to lose a great deal just by necessity. Even the miniseries lose a great deal. Um, so I guess what I'm saying about 10,000 Coffins is that it is a... It, it's always going to be a novella. It's just that's what it was meant to be. But what if it's too long? What if somebody read it and they're just like, ah, you know... This would have been great at 20,000 words. I don't know. Because as difficult as it would be to pump up that book to be a novel, it would also be really difficult to cut it way, 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 way down so that it fits some kind of maximum word count. You know, that it's way over. I think it's, it's easier to make something longer then make something shorter, except that making something longer takes additional work, additional creativity, additional thought and writing. Whereas making something shorter, you've already done the work and it's just eliminating and blacking out and snipping and saying, okay, well, he called her three times. Let's just have him call her twice and we'll combine these two scenes. I don't know. Like, do you, do you remember the episode where I went to the lake and I walked around the lake and the, the, shi the ships, the planes kept taking off? Uh, I did an episode uh, for stormy weather that way. And I, I believe I split that into two. But stormy weather is a story that I'm pretty proud of. I, I think it, it I, I really liked the idea and I liked the character. I liked the scenario. But I, I believe I told you that day that there was a scene that I was going to write where there were some people, there was a family stuck in the snow and he stops to help them out. And ultimately I didn't finish it. I didn't include it. I didn't even make reference to it because it felt extraneous. It felt like, okay, you know what? We know that he's a good guy. We know that he's self-sacrificing at this point. We don't need to see this scene, but it, at the same time, in the back of my mind, I think about that scene and, and I, I still would like to include it. Like maybe one day go back to Stormy Weather and add that scene. Now, but, but granted, what does that do to the story? It, it adds another, let's say it adds a thousand words. I don't know that it even would add a thousand words, but you could have whoever that he runs into be somebody that moved into town, you give a tiny bit of backstory for this. Maybe he went to high school with them. Maybe they were not friends. Maybe they had been friends, but they're no longer friends. Maybe, I don't know, you have a backstory about their kids being friends and no longer being friends. The wives 
having a falling out. You could easily fill in a thousand words with that one incident of him stopping to help a family whose car is stuck in the snow. But does the story need it? And I think that's the, the reason that I never included that, was this, no, I, I don't need it. And it, will it help the story itself? No, I don't think it will. It'll just make it longer. There are times when you'll get like a director's cut or a television cut of a movie. Sometimes it enriches things. I remember the first time I saw the Aliens extended cut and how that enriches the experience of Aliens. It takes all the stuff that you love in the movie Aliens and it just adds more to it. But I remember seeing like the extended cut of The Lost World, Steven Spielberg's The Lost World, and it just made it longer. I remember there was a television cut of the 1978 Superman where they put in just tons and tons and tons of extra footage because the Salkinds had, had realized that ABC would pay them a dollar sign for each minute of the film that they showed. And so they stuck all sorts of things into it. And that was the version that I knew from my childhood. It was great in my mind. It was, it was wonderful. There was an extended cut that was released on DVD where Richard Donner had put in some of the more important scenes, some of the scenes that he liked that he had to trim. And then years passed and they put out that three-hour TV cut. And I, oh, I, I was just like, I've got to grab this because I love the 78 Superman. It is my favorite superhero film still. And it's too long. There are moments where the camera just lingers, where it just takes a little while longer to get to the parts that we remember. It's just longer. It is not better. And that was disappointing. I just thought, you know, I love Superman and I love the extended cut of Superman even more. I'm going to love the three-hour cut of Superman all the... Oh, it's too long. You know, it's weird. Everybody's taste. Like I said, I've got a friend who likes to talk about how long the Lord of the Rings movies were. They're just too fudging long. But I would rather watch the super, super long extended cuts that Peter Jackson put out on video than the theatrical cuts. Because everything is better. Everything is deeper. Everything is more. They were great movies to begin with, but you get more of the great movies. Those might be bad examples because they were epics. You know what I mean? Those were, you know, it's the most famous fantasy book ever released and you know they they really decided to go all in on these things but like i said the friend of mine that felt like they were too long to begin with in 2001 2 and 3 why would he ever watch the expanded versions extended versions here's another thing so uh in 2018 i wrote a story uh, ostensibly for the Steef, it was um, my friend of misery, and um, I'm finally getting. I'm 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 starting the process, compiling that, uh, formatting it, getting it ready to where it can be released. And I ended up splitting it into two, into part one and part two. Not two different books, but two sections, two halves of the same story, and. I looked today because I was going to do this episode and the first half is 13,715 words. And the second half is 12,035 words, which together are 25,750 words. That is, again, novella length. And I can tell you that before I'm done formatting it, the sucker will be 26, 27, 28,000 words. And when I'm done recording the audio, it's going to be 30,000 words. 
I mean, it could be more. I looked today and there were three or four just sections of me summarizing what probably happens at this point. There's like a whole romantic subplot with the main girl that I didn't write. There's just like a page that explains while all of this is happening, we've got this romantic subplot. And I had completely forgotten about that. I groaned when I saw it today because it's like, oh, so not only am I going to have to write this, which I can do, but I'm going to have to find a way to spread it through the story that I've already been telling in a natural way. You know, a little bit goes here and a little bit in this part. All right, this is a whole chapter about it. Okay, later on, we're going to reference back to the romance so that it doesn't feel like it was added later, like it was some arbitrary thing. Like, you know, the scenes in a movie that were done in reshoots with a different director in the producer's backyard. You will see that stuff every once in a while. I guess the point I was trying to make is, okay, the the current version is a 25,000-word My Friend of Misery too long. And the answer is yes. For what it was intended, yeah, it's too long. It was a story that I was writing for the Dunstief, for Big Anklevich, because last year I ran out of juice. I didn't feel like writing anymore. And he uh, challenged me to write this story. And so I started writing it and I wrote it. But it was a much bigger idea than I thought that it would be. There are short story ideas and there are novel ideas And this seems to be something right there in the middle. I thought I could compromise by splitting the story in two, having the first half be about this girl and her brother, and the second half be about the girl by herself. But even then, even when it was like an 11,000-word first half, I never sent it to Big Anklevich because an 11,000-word story is too big to run on the dune steve i just don't, i don't have the patience or energy or commitment to do an 11,000 word story on that show it's not worth it i mean i i, I will let you decide whether it's worth it to run a 2,000 word story on that show but i told him that i would send it to him and i i i, I still would like to do that but when i do that first section that first half will be 15,000 words And yeah, there's no way we are doing a 15,000-word story on the Doonstief. I mean, unless somebody volunteers to do all the work for me. So, what if Big said, well, what about a 7,000-word version of the first half of My Friend of Misery? Well, you know, I think I'd just send it to him, the long version, and say, yeah, if you want to cut this in half, go ahead and cut it in half and run it on the show. I don't know if that would work. Because like I said, I send him a 15,000-word story and he cuts it down to 7,000. It's possible that that would make the story better, but I don't think it's probable. You know, to, to put out the Reader's Digest condensed books version of my story probably would just... Uh, well, it would be a lot more work for Big to do than it's it's worth... And then, yeah, who knows? It might really, really bother me the things that he chose to cut. He cuts it down to like 3,000 words. That would be a friendship-ending event, I think, right? And he's like, there you go. I just got rid of all the stuff that, that didn't work. But yes, conversely, my friend of misery at 25,000 words, let's double it. What kind of book does it make at 50,000 Words And I feel like this idea could fill a 50,000-word book. I feel like it could fill a series of stories. But again, I'm not a novel writer. I'm a short story writer. I would rather take My Friend of Misery and split it into four. One, two, three, four. Different short stories that tell a narrative instead of trying to make it one cohesive novel. I don't think I'm going to do that. Don't get me wrong. I've never considered doing that. And it's still so far off. I don't even know why I'm telling you. Well, I'm telling you about it because I was looking at it today. 
And I was looking at that paragraph about the love interest or, or page about the love interest. And I, I'm going to be honest, this idea about Brielle and Brent Montrose and their special friend is maybe too much story for me. It's an idea that somebody else should write because I don't know, it's just too big. I got it into my head that I would have them. They, they live in Los Angeles and she was a child actress. You know, she would do commercials, she would do TV and she wasn't any good at it. But then her parents had another kid and Brent, her little brother, is really good at it. And we chart, even though that's not what the, the story is about, we chart the success of Brent. And what does that do to the older sister who was never any good, didn't succeed enough, you know, the phone doesn't ring for Brielle. I thought that that would be a very interesting subplot or character beat for her. I don't know. I guess I've said I don't know a bunch of times. Maybe I need to get some kind of uh, sound clip off of YouTube from a movie where somebody says, I don't know, and I stick that in there every time I say it because I say it too much. But it's a phrase that I am intimately acquainted with because I, I really am just making this up as I go along. I am not an expert at writing. I just, I just do the best I can. And sometimes the stories come out great and sometimes the stories come out not so great. But did anybody ever tell Neil Stevenson that Seven Eves was really good, but it was too long and it needed to be split into three different books. And that way you can get three paychecks from it and you can actually expand these three books that you've split it into. So each section is its own book. Did anybody ever say that to him? Did anybody ever say to Brandon Sanderson, this book is really good, but it kind of needs some trimming. It's just too much. And, you know, let's say that I put out my friend of misery and somebody says to me, you had, you were encouraged by a bad dream that you had to write this story. That would have made a great short story. Too bad. It's not that it's a mediocre novella. I, if somebody said that to me, it would really bother me. But I would think about it and think, geez, I considered trying to turn this into a novel or a series of novels, let alone cut it way, way back to just being a short story. I don't know. I, say I, don't I think we've all read a book that someone has written based on a short story that they wrote earlier and Sometimes you're just like, wow, it's amazing that this sprang from that. It's amazing to look at where he chose to expand or she. But every once in a while, you'll get something like, oh, for, for example, Ender's Game was a short story. It was really a good short story, but it made an excellent novel. But every once in a while, you'll get one where the, the short story was the superior version, where they took the short story and instead of sort of using that as a springboard, they just bulked up that short story. They injected subplots here and there. They injected more conflict and more backstory. And where the short story ended, the novel version continues. And it just, it's a corpulent version of the short story. I guess these are professional works that we're talking about. Where the paycheck comes in, and that's great. With my own stuff, where there's not really a paycheck, unless you, you know, care to donate to me, they're just decisions that I have to make, going with my gut. And you know what? My gut says that I've said all that I need to say right now. I think I had started out saying that this was going to be a short episode, and I guess it still is. But it could have been shorter. Could have been longer, too. I have been Rich Outfield. And this has been the Rish Out Cast. Good night. I cannot believe it has come to this. 
The Rish Outcast has always been presented under a Creative Commons attribution non-commercial license. And yet look at what you've done with it. It was not to be sold, not to be hacked apart, and not to be claimed by anyone except the original benighted podcaster. You might have gone so far, even to supporting young Outfield with his foolhardy Patreon account schemes. But no, I trusted you, loved you, and how have you betrayed me? I thought this would be interesting. I, I've been trying to bring back the fake Sean Connery songs because I asked the Patreon supporters, did I already tell you about this? So I asked them, hey, would you guys like more single uh, episode stories, you know, self-contained short stories, more multi-part, like longer stories, novellas, that kind of thing that I do over several episodes, or more fake Sean Connery songs? And the answer was yes, which didn't help me in the slightest. So, I, I mean, I guess in 2019, you're going to get single episode stories. You'll probably get a couple of multi-part stories. But here, I'm, I've been trying to do fake Sean songs again. Also, oh gosh, I don't know if I dare tell you this, but I'm going to tell you anyway. I have a feeling that this is going to be it, 2019, for the real Sean Connery. I don't know why, I just, I, I feel like this is going to be our swan song for the man, and I don't know if I will dare do fake Sean songs once he's gone. So tonight I was about to record a story, and then I thought of Al Green's Let's, Let's Stay Together. Together. Great Motown song. I mean, it's hard to think of a Motown song that's not great. I know there are some. Um... The Tears of the Clown, I, I friggin' hate. President of the United States, remember he warned everybody about my guy. <laughs> but I love Let's, Let's Stay Together. And so I turned it on and I started to do it as Fake Sean. And the song will not Fake sean size. And so I thought it would be fun just to let you hear a bit of, of the reason why I can't do this as a Fake sean song. I, I'm so in love with you, whatever you want to do is all right with me. Here we go. Cause you who make me feel so brand new, and I I want to spend my life with you. And he's saying since, baby, since we've been together, ooh, loving you forever, who is all what I need. Let me be the one you come running to. I'll never be untrue. Oh, baby, let's, <laughs> let's stay together. I'm loving you, whoever. Whether times are good or bad, happy or sad. Yeah, see? It's just too high. And there's the... Oh, 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 ooh, ooh, my turn. Hey, no, 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 I'm not going to do the whole song. I'm certainly not going to do it as fake Arnold. Whether times are good or bad, they're happy or sad. Why? Somebody, why some people break up? Ooh, you turn around and make up. 
I just can't see You'd never do that to me Would you, baby? Staying around you is all I see Alright, okay, I'm sorry, I can't do it It's just, there's a certain range for Sean Connery And a certain range for Arnold Schwarzenegger and neither of them lend themselves to Al Green, okay? Oh. Happy Valentine's Day. Wait. That was months ago. Color me embarrassed. The Blue Air Compressor did not come until later. It is desperately important that the reader be made cosmic. That the reader be made cosmic. That the reader be made cognizant that the reader be made cognizant of these facts. It reminded him of the big Kogel hot dog billboard. It reminded him of the big Kogel's hot dog billboard. It reminded him of the big Kogel's hot dog billboard. He passed every day. It reminded him of the big Kogel's hot dog billboard. He passed every day leading in... It reminded him of the big Kogel's hot dog billboard. He passed every day heading into the city, which showed an enormous bunless the dust ruffle. Lyle found himself staring under the bed. The dust ruffle tickling his nose. Just inches away, a detective's badge on its... Just inches away lay a detective's badge on its leather belt clip... Just inches away lay a detective's badge on its leather belt clip... Jesus. Just inches away lay a detective's badge on its leather belt clip placard, J. Good emblazoned across the bottom. And on the far side of the bed, just in front of the bedside table, was a nickel-plated revolver. Yeah, a lot of bad stuff. Me too. No need to rehash it. All was sworn into the record as testimony before the CLCG. Before the CLGC. Damn it. All was sworn into the record as testimony before the CLGH. G.J. All was sworn into the record as testimony before the CLCJ. Dang it. All was, all was sworn into the record as testimony before the CLGAJ. Christ. All was sworn into the... All was sworn into the record as testimony before the CLGJ. He needed to be much farther from her than the... He needed to be much farther from her than the cramped confines of the... He needed to be much farther from her than the cramped confines of the pre... He needed to be much farther from her than the cramped confines of the Prius allowed.